Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. My name is Leo West, and I'm very excited to be joined today with Jessica Davis and Michael Nesbitt. And we're here today to talk all about national security prosecutions. It's been a big couple of months in terms of new criminal offenses and updates to national security prosecutions. So we're going to break them down for you today, both the national security implications and what it means from a legal perspective with Jess and Mike. There is far too much here to try and do in just one podcast. So we're going to break it down into two podcasts. We're going to start off today in what I like to call the evidence to podcast dilemma section of this discussion. We're going to talk about some new charges. There's Uh, three sets of Canadian charges and one quasi-Canadian American charges I want to talk about with Mike and Jess. The first one we're going to talk about just happened on Friday, but the individual um, at the center of this story is well known to everyone. The name Abu Huzaifa is going to be familiar to people because he was featured or was the subject really of the podcast from the New York Times called Caliphate. And this was a wildly popular uh, podcast. It really shocked Canadians because what happened in this podcast is that he admitted to having gone to Syria and joined the Islamic State. And not only that, he also admitted and described in great detail the execution of people and his involvement in a number of different atrocities, um, including um, at least one war crime. So he really told Canadians an awful lot about what he did, and he did so by talking to the New York Times about it. Now, the thing that's interesting here is that for the longest time, we did not know who he was. When the podcast aired, it was clear that he was in Toronto and free and not facing any criminal charges that the public knew about. That's right. So Abu Huzaifa, who we now know is Shiroz Chowdhury from Burlington, was charged on Friday with terrorist activity hoax. So this is not a terrorism offense, but he was charged with a hoax. Now, Mike, can you explain to us what that means and what the implications of this charge are? Sure, thank you, Leah. So this is gonna be an interesting one because we haven't had much in the way of case law on terrorist hoax in Canada, which means that we haven't had the opportunity to interpret exactly what the charges mean. So at a broad level, you can imagine it's a hoax, a lie, right, uh, about an event, and that event must be tantamount to terrorist activity or meet the definition in the criminal code of terrorist activity. So at a broad level, you can see why if proven in court as a hoax, uh, and if you listen to the Caliphate podcast, you would recognize the, the claims were clearly tantamount to terrorist activity or probably tantamount to terrorist activity. So the question will be, is it a hoax? Now that's what the Crown is going to want to argue. So what then do they have to prove? Well, the offense reads, if you commit an offense uh, without lawful excuse and with intent to cause any person to fear death, bodily harm, damaged property, serious interference with the lawful use or operation of property, and you commit the act that in all circumstances is likely to cause reasonable apprehension that terrorist activity is occurring or will occur, without believing that such activity is occurring or will occur, then you've committed a terrorist hoax. So that's a bit of a mouthful, but if you look at that, that is specifically a lot different than what I said at the beginning, which is a hoax about terrorist activity, right? It's using words like is occurring or will occur. 
So that's going to be interesting in this case because, of course, this hoax was not something that is occurring or will occur. It was something that happened in the past. They will also have to prove that it caused people to fear for their life or bodily harm. Well, that's going to be tricky too because this is, I did something in the past. And then you're going to have to say, and based on my past actions and I haven't been arrested, other people to fear for bodily harm or death. So a little bit of a strict definition, and if interpreted by the court in that way, uh, th this is not a slam dunk case for the Crown. That's even if they're able to prove that there's a hoax. And of course, that's the last element that they're going to have to prove, right? Which is, this is an individual who at least to date has said the story was true. So the Crown here is going to have to prove a negative, to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that this story didn't happen. It's very hard to prove, of course, that someone wasn't somewhere. You'll be looking at electronic evidence, uh, whether he was posting from elsewhere. Um, there's already been some evidence about transcripts, so whether the individual was actually in school at the time rather than where they claimed. So there's possibility of evidence here, but not an easy case to make. Right, and thinking back to when the podcast came out, so when the crux of this hoax was originally perpetrated in 2013, 18, this story and the podcast actually had impact on Parliament. We had the opposition come out and based on the caliphate, call for the government to put forward a strategy for how they were going to start dealing with foreign fighters. The government eventually did put forward their, their so-called strategy, which was essentially a, a statement of things that we already knew, um, but it did lead the government to say that they didn't believe they had a legal obligation to repatriate anyone. Um, and as we've reported in the past, um, when myself and Amara Mersingham traveled to Syria and asked about Canadian efforts for repatriation, we were told that you know, Canadians were some of the first on the phone as ISIS was losing ground to start talking about repatriation. And then this podcast started to create real impact on the ground in Canada. And all of a sudden discussions between the administration in Syria and Canadian officials started to dry up. It is entirely possible that this government never intended to repatriate anyone and that those were just the usual outreach from consular officials who were just doing their jobs and that this may be, have been interpreted by the people who were in Syria as cooling at that time. And it's, very, it's possible that the government said at the time, okay, stop all efforts because we actually have never had any intention. So, you know, I understand that argument, but I don't think that we have a lot of evidence for it. The difficult thing here too, is that a lot of that's going to be cabinet confidence. So even if, you know, you did a tips and got some of those internal documents, a lot of them aren't going to tell us much. So, you know, it's an interesting hypothesis and I understand that, people want to make that logical leap, but we really have nothing to go on to say that that's true. So do you think there was an impact in terms of how Canadian security officials would have gone about investigating this individual as a result of the podcast? Or do we have evidence that they were already investigating this individual and his claims beforehand? The entire New York Times podcast really kicks off because of Abu Huzaifa's Instagram account. And this is, I think, happening in about 2016, 2017, where he's posting a bunch of stuff. I haven't personally seen the Instagram account, so I can't get into a lot of detail about what was on it. But when you're posting on social media about this, it's easy for law enforcement or security services to get start to under, start to get a picture of what it is you're claiming to be doing. So I would think that before the podcast aired, it's very plausible that this investigation was ongoing. 
when the podcast aired, if it wasn't ongoing, almost certainly this would have sparked interest from law enforcement security services because they just have to run down these these claims, really, like this is somebody who is admitting to very serious criminal activity. So there's almost no chance that that didn't spark additional inquiries if they weren't already ongoing. What happened after that would have been a really interesting investigation, because here you have somebody who's claiming to do all these things. And really, when you're running an investigation like this, you're looking for proof of something that happened. But what they might have been finding is only exculpatory evidence, which from an investigative perspective, is possibly one of the most interesting things that could happen. Because, you know, when you're running an investigation like this, you really, you know, most of the time you're getting a mixed picture. You're not getting all the information pointing very clearly in one direction. But if the RCMP's belief that he didn't actually travel to Syria is true, that exculpatory information would have been piling up and piling up and piling up leaving the investigators in a very interesting position. I want to come back to that. We talk to our students a lot about confirmation bias. I wonder here if there there would have been any incentive to bias towards disproving this claim. It's really interesting when you think about it, because most of the time in these kinds of investigations, you're going on a fairly flimsy lead, some things that may be circumstantial to sort of try to identify individuals. In this case, though, the evidence was so strong because he was telling people about it. So there's a certain bias in terms of taking somebody's admission of a crime this serious at face value. But when they started to not find that evidence, or if they started to not find that evidence, that would have been a really interesting process. So, you know, I think part of it would have really been, first of all, starting off to really figure out where he was and when. And so as the investigators are starting to get information potentially coming from financial transactions or communications or emails and all this kind of stuff, and they start to geolocate it, it's probably starting to raise a lot of questions in their mind about where he is and what he's done. And so that would have been probably one of the most interesting processes. And then, of course, after that, trying to figure out if, you know, a financial transaction is conducted, for instance, that he was, in fact, the person who did that, or if an email was sent, that he was the person who sent that email and from that particular location. So this would have been a really fascinating investigation. This is the kind of thing that I'm actually kind of excited about in terms of this case. I'm hopeful that we're going to get to see some of the evidence and some of the process behind this, you know, from an investigative perspective, that's not great because it could be revealing um, some techniques and that's always a choice that people have to make when they pursue these kinds of charges and in terms of the evidence that they want to present. But sort of following that process through will undoubtedly be interesting. Yeah, Mike, talking about that evidence that would have been collected and, and having to disclose that or reveal that, how do you think that will play out in terms of presenting evidence in order to actually prove the elements of the offense? Yeah, that's going to be really interesting. I mean, one of the things I always think is is interesting just theoretically in these cases is when you have to prove what other people think, uh, how we do that in the criminal law. And, and we, don't, we don't tend to do a survey, right? So, so in this case, as we said, you, know, you have to show that other people feared death or seriously bodily harm as a, as a result of the threats. How are they going to prove that other people felt that way, right? And so it, it, it is less likely to be a survey or a witness. It is more likely to be a sort of argument that this could logically lead to those sort of emotions. Now, how you would then prove, for example, that an individual was not in a place, uh, I guess your, your best bet there is really hard to prove a negative. So try to prove a positive, prove that they're somewhere else. 
right? And so you could imagine all sorts of information that might be available uh, if they have a witness. We've already mentioned if they have transcripts from the school, right? So the school that the individual was purportedly at in Pakistan, uh, classmates or teachers that may have seen them there. Um, he was pretty prolific and has been pretty prolific on social media. So uh, most of our social media posts will often have uh, geolocation, right? So posted from, you know, go, go through the social media and see is the Instagram account and the, and the Facebook account posted from Oakville or is it from somewhere else, right? And then you're going to get into all sorts of problems about how much we can trust that information, how authentic the social media information is, which is always a problem in these cases, right? Can we tie it not just to the individual's account, but what if the individual says, I was hacked, I had a friend do it, it wasn't me. Um, there was a, there was a technical problem, you know, you have to prove it. So go talk to Facebook about the possibility of technical problems with geolocation and all that sort of stuff. So there's going to be a lot of, if it, if it does actually make it there, uh, again, there's a, there's a lot of interesting evidentiary issues that we'll see, I think, going forward. How do you think the podcast itself will play into the evidence either for the defense or for the crown? Oh boy. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Well, we, we've talked on this podcast in the, in the past about uh, journalistic privileges, right? And we've actually had legislation and Supreme Court cases in the last several years with respect to that. So that it, things could get very interesting from that perspective, right? So the podcast, for those who listen to it, I, I thought presented some evidence that this individual was doing what he said he was doing. And it also threw some cold water on that, right? And said, we're not sure about some of these claims. The story seems to be changing. We have some evidence here to suggest otherwise. That means that they have stuff that would speak to both the prosecution and the defense's case. So stuff that the prosecution and the police would be interested in, stuff that the defense would be interested in. To make this even trickier, not only is this a journalist, this is a journalist in another country. So this is taking place out of New York. This is an American citizen. So things, things could get very tricky there, I, I would imagine. That, that might end up being a whole podcast in itself if they go down that road. My, my guess is everyone will try to avoid it. <laughs> yeah. The only thing that I want to add about that is, you know, the, the information that's presented in the podcast, it's very, very little of it is actually something other than what Abu Huzaifa says or what Abu Huzaifa provides. So he provides videos and photographs. I don't think his face is actually visible in any of them um, that were geolocated to Syria. But again, if he's not in the photograph, it's difficult to say that it's actually him. And then the other piece was U.S. law enforcement and security and intelligence officials confirming to the New York Times that Abu Huzaifa had been in Syria. But we have to look critically at that information. There's an awful lot of cooperation that goes on between American and Canadian law enforcement and security services. Where did they get their confirmation from? How independent is it? And does any of it relate back to information or possible investigations already ongoing by Canada? And how specific was the information that was provided? I can see it going a couple of different ways. The one thing that strikes me just in this conversation is that by telling his story through journalists, that he didn't get control over how his story was conveyed. He didn't get control over whether or not anyone fact-checked him and found him to be false. And in the New York Times situation, there was caveats placed on what he had to say. CBC did follow-up reporting saying he either lied to them or he lied to us. And by choosing to 
share his story through reporters that would then filter what he had to say, you know, how much does that impact on the Crown's ability to prove his intent to create fear by communicating certain information and whether or not that'll have an impact on the ability to actually prove his intent and whether or not anybody would have a reasonable apprehension of fear when it's up to the journalist to decide how to tell that story. Leah, on that last point, you know, one of, one of the things that has been in the back of my head since this started is it's a really uncomfortable argument to say, because of what you did in the past, people now fear for their lives, which is sort of what you have to do here. And you have to do it here because this legislation was drafted for the purpose of getting at hoaxes prospectively. So you phone in and say you are going to do something, it caused a bunch of action, people get scared, it turns out not to be true, we charge you with a hoax. It's drafted to tackle that. And because it's drafted to tackle that, it doesn't fit easily with this weird situation. So if you go down that route and say, well, he didn't actually threaten anyone, right? So it's not like calling in a, a bomb threat and saying people might be seriously injured or, or or die in this situation. No one was threatened, right? It's just saying I did stuff in the past. It, it's hard to imagine how you get to that's that's a threat to death or serious bodily harm without saying the mere fact that this individual is still at large based on what they did in the past is causing people in the neighborhood to be scared of them. And, and I think that could be really awkward for, for a number of other possible charges that are out there where the, the, the justice system will be, will think hard before they go down that route, I would imagine. The example I was kind of thinking of and not in the terrorist context was, my name is Alice, I'm a serial killer and I've never been arrested, right? You're talking about things you've done in the past. The fear is the result that you've just said you're somebody that has a propensity for a certain type of activity and that because you haven't been arrested, there's a risk that you may perpetrate the same offense again or the same kind of violence again. But in this case, the context is very specific to someone who traveled abroad to fight with a terrorist organization and then returned home and seemingly went back to a typical, if you want to call it that, Canadian life. Another one that comes to mind to me is uttering threats, right? So uttering threats is also your, your sort of your classic, you say something and it causes someone to be fearful that you're going to do something prospectively. And so... Uh, you know, different charges, different offenses, you don't necessarily have to interpret them the same way. But that sort of logic, I would just be a little bit worried about it in these other contexts, where you say, well, the uttering threat was he wasn't actually, he didn't actually threaten anyone. He just said in the past, I did something bad and got away with it. Or I should have been in jail for 10 years, which would have included right now, but I was only in jail for two years and now I'm out. And that causes people to fear. And then you put them back in jail as though that's a that's an uttering threat, right? That's a, that's a very uncomfortable argument. And I don't think in other contexts, the legal system is going to go there. So we'll see what they do in the context of terrorism. So last question before we move on. This is going to be hard. If it could reveal, as you said, Jess, potentially having to reveal investigative techniques, right? Investigating terrorism is always something that could potentially give rise to that intelligence evidence dilemma that we talk about so often. Why would law enforcement bring this charge? It's a good question. And I think it's probably one a lot of people are asking. I think 
Look, I mean, it, it's not just these charges, right, that, that people ask this question about, right? There's a lot of charges where you say, maybe even if someone technically did something, are they really best served putting this person in jail? Is that, is that the best outcome here? And so if you look at, say, our principles of sentencing, and you say, well, you know, that's, that's look, it's still in the criminal code, section 718, our principles of sentencing say, this is why we put people in jail, and it applies to why we charge people. Right. And so if the prosecution thinks you have a reasonable prospects of conviction, so they must be they must be doing their their calculus and deciding it's possible here. And it's in well, the not technically because he's only been charged so far. He's only been charged. Right. Right. Yeah. But if you if you go back to our principles of sentencing and you say, OK, is this in the in the public interest to charge? You would probably look at why we would charge someone. Right. And two of the things that come up quite often are denunciation and deterrence. And so there's two types of deterrence, as they'll say in all first year criminal law classes. There's specific deterrence, which is deter, deter this individual from doing it again. And there's general deterrence, which is essentially sending a message. And so I'll let other criminologists jump in here about the, the actual value of deterrence and, and whether it, it is actually effective, but it remains in our criminal code and it remains a consideration for police and prosecutors. So my guess is, that those, at least those two things they would be relying on. One, to denounce the behavior, to say it's wrong, to reinforce to the public that they were, the, the police were on this, that this is not negligence, that they can feel safe in their community, that it was properly investigated, there was good reason. And the other would be deterrence. And so the, the general deterrence would be, you know, there's such a crime as terrorism hoax and don't do it, or you could get prosecuted. And the specific deterrence would be, stop doing this. It stops the individual who, as I understand it, is continuing to make some claims that this story might be true. So, um, you know, whether or not you buy that is a different question, but I, I think that's probably two of the considerations that are driving things. I'm sure we'll be talking about this more in the future as it continues to be a fascinating case. And I'm very interested to see how all parties handle this, including uh, the New York Times. I want to move on. We've got two more couples of arrests to discuss. The first one is in your neck of the woods, Mike. So I'll let you start. We've had uh, Hussein Borhot and Jamal Borhot, who we know are relatives, both allegedly left Canada in 2013. I'm reading from the RCMP statement here and return home in 2014. Hussein Borhot was charged earlier this summer. Jamal Borhot just charged uh, this week, both in Calgary. And I'm struck here first, not only by the charges that Hussein was act is actually facing, which I hope Mike you'll, you'll raise, but also the fact that these charges stem from traveling in 2013 and we're only getting around to charging them now. So they're about a month apart. So I think the, the first one was in August and then we're seeing about a month, maybe a little more later, the second set of charges. And they're essentially, they're not using the terrorism traveling charge. Um, but frankly, our participation and facilitation charges under the terrorism offenses always were extraterritorial. Uh, and so always could have applied in much the same way to terrorist travel. In fact, so what you're saying is the charges that they're facing are actually for things that they did when they got there, not for the sheer fact that they went there. It, it appears that appears to be the case, particularly in this most recent one where they're talking about participating in the activities of a group, right? So, so which means beyond administrative range, contributing to the activities of a group that is in turn facilitating or carrying out terrorist activity. 
So it means it means essentially they're they're connecting these individuals to ISIS in Syria. So very interesting. That means that means two types of evidence probably. One is we have a witness or someone who's willing to testify, uh, which may or may not be the case. And the other option is we have intelligence from Syria or some sort of electronic evidence that would be sufficient to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that they were in Syria and engaged with these groups. Uh, so both could be the case. In the former case, that's interesting <laughs> because who is that individual? Why now? In the latter case, if it's the electronic evidence, that's interesting because there's a good chance that's not coming from Canada. And then we get all those fun intelligence to evidence originator control, um, who's provided the intelligence, all that sort of stuff. One of the charges for Hussein Borho, we haven't seen Jamal be charged with the same thing, is is kidnapping. Yeah, and I'll just flag for the listeners that Mike and I actually wrote a blog post about this case on an, on the Intrepid Podcast website. So if they want more details on the written law and everything written down, um, they can go there and read that. But the kidnapping case was super interesting for me because we know that ISIS engaged in several different kinds of kidnapping particularly in the early days. The first type was really targeting locals. That was for small ransom payments. So it was a bit of a fund generation activity, but they also ended up kidnapping a bunch of their political rivals um, and then disappearing some of them, unfortunately. They also kidnapped, of course, the Yazidis and enslaved them. Also engaged in other kinds of kidnapping, so more of the international variety. And that was really done for large ransom payments and to generate uh, propaganda for propaganda value. So we don't know who was kidnapped in this case, but that's something that I'm going to be looking for in terms of details because it's such an interesting charge and the evidence that they must have seems to be pretty specific here. Mike, why do you think we're seeing these charges so long after these two individuals returned to Canada? It's a great question. And I think it's one that's been bouncing around with those who've been following the story. There are good answers to it. The, the simple answer is we don't know why. It could be all sorts of things. Uh, there could be bad reasons for it. The, the job wasn't done six years ago and it's only happening now, but there's lots of reasonable reasons for it too. As I said, there's two types of evidence here. And if you're looking at what they are, it's a good chunk of it would either have come from Syria, probably from an ally. So if we're just getting that information now, then the charges are just going to come now. Or if we're just getting enough of it now, then the charges are going to come now. We didn't have it before. The charges didn't come before. The other option, as we said, was you have a witness. So that could be someone who knew the kidnapped person. It could be, who knows? It would just be speculation. But if that person is putting you over the top in terms of your ability to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that these people committed these offenses and they're willing to testify today and weren't six years ago, that might explain why it's happening today. What should we assume RCMP or CSIS, for example, were doing in the six years in the meantime with these individuals? I mean, if the idea that, as Mike suggests, that this information came from electronic records and we just got it now, were these guys just hanging out, walking around like nothing ever happened? Or should we give our intelligence services some more slack and think that they were investigating this whole time. I know that the actual statement that came out from the RCMP did say that this had been a long, long investigation. So should we presume then that they've been tracking these guys for six years? It's difficult to say. So all of the hypotheses that Mike put forward are plausible. And I don't necessarily think what I'm going to say is applicable in this case, um, just based on sort of what I know or what 
people have told me about what's been going on in Calgary in, in the short term. But in a lot of cases, you don't want to be too proactive with your charges when you think that there may be other people involved in the network or that there may be other evidence forthcoming. So in a lot of cases, you may have all of your evidence lined up and then just wait and make sure that you're not losing any part of the network or any piece of the puzzle. This case, though, strikes me as a little bit different because, you know, seven years is a very long time, but we really fundamentally don't know what's happened. Something's changed, something either strategy-wise or evidence-wise. Something's changed to prompt these arrests. And Mike, there was a large cell of individuals who left Calgary or a group of young men who left Calgary in 2013, or at least it was reported. Is that not correct? Yeah, I I love my city very much, but we are punching above our weight in terms of extremist activity, particularly sending terrorist travelers away during that time. Uh, Per capita. I think we had one of the highest, if not the highest in Canada, for whatever reason. But a number of them have also, uh, I think they're presumed deceased. Again, more to see there, really looking forward to understanding this kidnapping element of this offense and what it was that eventually led law enforcement to bring these charges now. The last couple I want to discuss is a case that actually started in Turkey. And it's a couple, both from the GTA, Halima Mustafa and Ikar Mao, who Mao, the husband, 22, was arrested and placed on a peace bond upon his return from Turkey in December of last year. Um, His wife, Halima, followed him, and she was only uh, very recently arrested in August. I know that uh, Mao was denied bail, and Halima's uh, bail hearing has not yet been heard, so that she is uh, still awaiting that. So we don't have a lot of information, but I know that their story did make a splash. It was reported in CBC long before they even returned home. Jess, do you want to talk about how we first heard of this couple? We first heard of this couple because CBC got information that two individuals had been detained in Turkey for trying to cross into Syria and join the Islamic State. The information appears to have come from their parents, and then, and they were not, to the best of my knowledge, arrested while they were in Turkey. They were simply detained and then sent home. This caused an awful lot of uproar uh, because CBC took the decision to name them, even though they hadn't actually been charged with any Uh, criminal offenses at that time. The information coming from the parents was also a bit of an interesting piece because parents in these kinds of situations, you know, they're often very unreliable. They tend to downplay their children's extremist activities or in some cases will overstate them for interpersonal reasons. So it was a really complex scenario and one that raised an awful lot of journalistic ethical issues. Right. So we first hear of them as a Canadian couple detained in Turkey. They get home. We find out that the husband is put on a peace bond and not long after then arrested. And then subsequently the wife was arrested. And both of them have actually been charged with not just leaving Canada to participate in the activities of a terrorist group, but they've also been charged with participation in activities of a terrorist group group, which is interesting if you consider the fact that if their goal really was to join ISIS, and that's where they were going, and they never got there, well, what is that participation? Mike, you're nodding at me, but what do you make of that? 
I have, I have no idea, to be honest with you. Uh, that's a really interesting one. And we've had, you know, our first case, Kawaja, went up to the Supreme Court on this with the concern that could participation be anything, right? And the concern expressed in around 2004 was, well, anyone who participates includes the dentist, the lawyer who's defending them, et cetera. So it can't just be any form of participation. It can't just be you sent an email, one would think. To be, as the court said, something beyond the de minimis range to sort of forward the agenda of the group. So presumably they have something that they think meets that definition. That means that they've taken some active measures to support the group in some way. What that is, I have no idea. We just don't know the full picture yet, whether or not there's other activity that they engaged in either before or after that would have led to this, or if we really are seeing the, the double charging for the same set of facts. I don't think that's clear to anyone on the public record yet. Really fascinating stuff. The last subject I want to talk about, ricin, back in the news. A French woman, so she's actually French, she immigrated to Canada. She became a Canadian citizen, I believe. Older woman, 53, who lives part-time in Canada, part-time in Texas, apparently, where she was arrested last year with weapons charges, accused of sending a letter, including Ricin, to President Donald Trump, along with uh, allegedly, I believe, six other letters to individuals in Texas. This letter allegedly said, I made a special gift for you to make a decision. The gift is in the letter. If it doesn't work, I'll find a better recipe for another poison, or I might use my gun when I'm able to come. Enjoy. So some really interesting dynamics here. Ultimately, this individual was arrested at the border where she apparently presented herself to border officials saying, I'm wanted for sending poison to the president. So there is so much going on here that I can't even begin to unpack. Jessica, I know you have considered this case. What are some of your general thoughts or what you would expect to see next? So what we know from this so far in terms of the motive and things that have been reported, it seems to be very much a very anti-Trump position. So to me, there's a very clear political motive here. And then there's also a very clear attempted act of violence. So for me, this really falls very much in that space of politically motivated violence. So whether we see any terrorism charges will be very interesting. Now, of course, it's very easy to look at somebody and say, this is clearly somebody who's got mental health issues, but we have to remember that this doesn't excuse the criminal culpability. The only thing I want to add in here is a bit of a personal interest on this case, just because of all of the research that I've done, obviously, on women in terrorism and women in politically motivated violence. This is such an interesting case, because not only is this a woman, of course, but it's somebody who's on the upper end of the age range. So there's a couple of anomalies there in terms of just pure data. And so it'll be interesting to see how that affects any potential sentencing or prosecutorial strategy, because we have seen some differences that appear to be gender-based, both in Canada and the United States. Do we think we should be at all concerned about blowback to Canada that a Canadian tried to kill the president of the United States? I, I know typically we do tend to fear the idea of a terrorist threat migrating across the border to the United States, but particularly with this president and this administration, do we expect any repercussions on our relationship? This is an interesting question because there's been a lot, well, there's been a number of 
threats from Canada to the United States. This is not the first one. And it's not only that, the FBI does an awful lot of heavy lifting when it comes to Canadian terrorism investigations. So I don't think that there will be blowback per se. I think that it'll just be yet another case of American law enforcement having to help the Canadians out. On that pleasant note, and we're going to hear more of that in part two of our series on national security updates, I'm going to thank uh, Jess and Mike and look forward to talking with them again soon. Uh, Thanks so much for listening. Thanks, Leah. Thank you so much, Leah.